Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. W-A-B-E in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Six years ago, David Sedaris wrote an essay explaining compulsive behavior related to his Fitbit. Since the pandemic, Sedaris has been walking all over New York, racking up those steps and miles. Of course, he wears a mask, about which he told the New York Times, everywhere I go, it smells the same, and it smells like my breath. Later in the program, a conversation with David Sedaris from his last visit to Atlanta. First, we pay tribute to a beloved maestro. The classical and film music worlds mourn the death of composer Ennio Morricone, who passed away in Rome on Monday at the age of 91. Morricone had a 66-year career in music composition, scoring over 500 films and television shows, and more than a hundred classical compositions. Morricone's music for The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly is as easily recognized as the music for Jaws and Psycho. And he provided some of the most heart-wrenching soundtracks in history, including that for Cinema Paradiso, which we're hearing now one of my all-time favorite compositions in any genre. WABE film music contributor Dr. Scott Stewart is here now with a tribute for this brilliant, one-of-a-kind musician. Scott, welcome back. Thanks, Loris. Boy, it is hard to say goodbye to Ennio Morricone, the maestro. That's what they called him in Italy a giant in the film music industry, although he never actually lived in Hollywood. And that's been, I think, such an interesting part of his entire career is, you know, we've talked about Max Steiner scoring 300 films, and that was kind of a a record during that industrial film production era of the 30s. But 
the output of this musician is just incredible. And nearly all the composers that have chimed in online and on Twitter and Instagram have said, absolutely, he was one of the most important influences of their composing careers. Ennio Morricone developed this really unique style, uh, if you if you can identify a single style, but it was unencumbered by traditions of Hollywood film music composition, even though he scored a number of American films during his career. In fact, even though he was known by Americans for his soundtracks to what we call the spaghetti westerns, it really would be hard to pin him down to any one musical style, I think. And still another sign of his genius. Ennio Morricone was born in Rome in 1928 in fascist Italy. In fact, the first film he scored was titled The Fascist, not an autobiography. That was in 1961. His father was a trumpeter. And the little Morricone was six years old when he started to compose. He attended the National Academy of Santa Cecilia as a trumpeter when he was 12 years old and completed a four-year program in six (laughs) months. We are talking prodigy here. Super overachiever. Yeah, notable too. Eric Korngold was 12 when he entered the conservatory and had written his first opera. Oh, well, they had no TV then, right? That's right. Lots of free time. His his early work included playing in jazz bands and arranging music for pop bands. In fact, he became a studio arranger for RCA Victor in 1955. And it was in the 1960s that he achieved international fame for scoring Westerns, though through the lens of an Italian viewing the American West. Scott, you have explained the different roles, the different ways in which music can convey the action or the story in a film. And for Morricone, music conveys the story as much as the characters or the actors themselves. Equal footing, I would say, if not more. That's right. I think Morricone was such a bold composer and had... uh, strong working relationships with his directors and there were lots of different well-known directors and music for Morricone relatively was not background like it can be in some films it was very much a part of the story itself and that is a rare achievement I think that um, especially given that his many of his artistic choices were a little bit off the beaten path and we'll we'll get to talk about a few of those um, today but I think it is a, a testament to his creativity and to his really diverse background in different musical genres that he brought all of these things to the storytelling medium of of, of film in a astonishingly effective way you know we've talked about backgrounds of different film composers and it's kind of fun to see 
where the younger composer grows into the older composer. And we know that a lot of the Hollywood tradition involves traditional conservatory training. So some like Eric Korngold, who came directly out of Austria in the 1930s, Bernard Herrmann from the American traditions, but still from the Western music school conservatory uh, training model, uh, you know, that's that was their background. Many composers today still come out of music schools. There are others like Danny Elfman, who was in Oingo Boingo, and Hans Zimmer was in a rock band that come to film music composition from slightly different paths. What's interesting about Morricone is he basically did both. He had conservatory training, he was very active in popular music in Italy, and he also worked during this very wackadoodle time of the classical music history timeline called the avant-garde period. And the bottom line was that he was surrounded by, influenced by, and open to all kinds of new sounds for expressive purposes. A celebrated collection of Morricone-inspired arrangements by producer Danger Mouse, a.k.a. Brian Burton, who's a native of Stone Mountain, Georgia, by the way, and composer Daniele Lupi surfaced about 10 years ago. This fascinating and eclectic project is a tribute to Morricone and features vocals by no less than Jack White and Nora Jones. WABE producer Kevin Rinker actually brought this to our attention, and this is a fantastic compilation album from 2010. I'd actually known Lupi as the composer for the Sex and the City movie and for Nine, and they did this really painstaking work to replicate the recording practices of the 60s and 70s so that it was in the kind of industry environment that Morricone would have been familiar with, and that is really just straight recording to tape rather than having overdubbing or any computer effects that we might have in 2020. So here's a track from the album Rome, a tribute to the popular type arrangements that Morricone might have been involved in in the 1960s and 70s. transports us back to the sound world of Ennio Morricone in the 60s and 70s. And around this time, Ennio Morricone created arrangements for folk singer Arlo Guthrie in a tune called Pastures of Plenty. It's a mighty hard road that these poor hands have hoed. My poor feet has traveled the hot, dusty road Out of your dust bowl and westward we rode Through deserts so hot and mountains so cold Well, I've wandered all over your green-growing land 
And wherever your crops are, I'll lend you my hand. On the edge of your cities, you'll see me, and then I come with the dust, and I'm gone with the wind. With the wind. With the wind. California, Arizona. Scott, even in the folk music, you can hear Morricone making use of a variety of instruments like pan flute, slapstick, bells, chimes, and even vocal chanters. And this is a hallmark of many of his film scores. He likes drawing from what's sometimes called world music or folk tradition. That's right. In fact, I would put this whole idea of interesting timbres or sources of sounds at the top of Morricone's ingenious craft. Pastures of Plenty is a great tune, and when you take out the vocals, you discover that it's actually the main theme to the 1964 Western Fistful of Dollars. This was directed by Morricone's classmate, Sergio Leone, and Leone loved this piece, and so when he heard it, he said, that's it, let's convert this to the main theme for the movie without the singing. Darmstadt, a post-World War II avant-garde music festival in Germany, and he claims that Darmstadt was where he understood what it was to write contemporary music. He became the primary member of Il Gruppo, a prominent experimental music composer's collective, which is very surprising when you consider how marvelously melodic he can be. That's right. And this music was not melodic. And uh, this is a super funky time for classical music. And I would venture to say nobody's favorite era. <laughs> um, this was experimental music that was asking hard questions of the classical music establishment and really asking those questions by breaking down all of the preconceived notions of familiar musical elements. So just t start down the list, melody, harmony, rhythm, time, instrumentation, form, the way you express yourself and so on. To all of our ears, this was a very strange and complicated and collection of non-melodic sounds. Here's a Morricone composition in that vein called The Feedback. This is Il Gruppo. 
So here we get not only this bizarre landscape of experimental music from the 1970s, but there's a little funk added to the equation. Admittedly, this entire avant-garde movement of music was academic. It did not gain much traction in the public or commercial circles. I guess that wasn't really their point. The, the really important takeaway for me here is that it's okay to open your mind and consider an infinite number of possibilities for what music is and how music comes into being other than just the European tradition from about 1600 to 1913. We'll return with Dr. Scott Stewart to hear more about Ennio Morricone after a short break. This is WABE Atlanta. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. Let's return to my conversation with Dr. Scott Stewart about the music of Ennio Morricone. The composer died Monday at the age of 91. We've come to appreciate that Ennio Morricone wasn't shy about introducing radical and contemporary elements in a traditional score. He seemed to have an endless imagination for timbre, for a combination of sounds that conveys a color, if you will, and how he could help tell the story of the film. When Morricone received his Oscar for Lifetime Achievement in 2007, the New York Times critic John Perales wrote, in the films that established his reputation in the 1960s, the series of spaghetti westerns he scored for Sergio Leone, Mr. Morricone's music is anything but a backdrop. Perales continues, it's sometimes a conspirator, sometimes a lampoon, with tunes that are as vividly in the foreground as any of the actors' faces. So, Scott, what we were saying about Morricone is he does not underscore. He's in your face. <laughs> That's right. He's in our face. And, I, you know, we all giggle about John Cage and his four minutes, 33 seconds, where the pianist basically walks to the piano, sits on the bench, waits for four minutes and 33 seconds, and then walks away. The point being is there are sounds in the world. There are humming lights and traffic going by outside and somebody squeaking their chair. 
and it's always different it's always evolving it's always changing and that was john cage's point is open your ears open your mind to the sounds that are around you and they very well could translate to something that's meaningful and i think in a way that composer john cage made us think about the nature of music and il morricone made us comfortable with the idea of film scoring that could pull in some of these unusual non-traditional elements of experimental music and make it super effective for his films il buono il brutto il cattivo in the original italian ever notice how everything sounds better in italian it does sound better <laughs> even bad things sound good in italian well il buono il brutto il cattivo is the translation for the good, the bad, and the ugly. This was director Sergio Leone's epic western from 1966, the third in the Dollars trilogy, which included A Fistful of Dollars in 1964 and For a Few Dollars More in 1965. Yeah, and these were kind of the trail end of the big string of westerns in Hollywood, and it breathed a little bit of life back into them, but I think it also signaled the final curtain, and we really wouldn't see another big Hollywood western until Silverado in 1985. The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly is probably Morricone's best-known and most iconic score, and it's, as you mentioned earlier, a music that is recognized everywhere in the world. It was so popular that it actually made it to number four on the Billboard Pop Album Chart in 1968, which would never happen today. And it's important to note that this soundtrack broke from convention from what we kind of understood to be Western soundtrack sounds. Here's a little bit of the main title from The Magnificent Seven by Elmer Bernstein. This music is instantly recognized as being American Western film music. There is a clear lineage from the cowboy music of Aaron Copeland in the 1940s, and it really is one of the signals that we're in this genre. The opening scene of The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly features the entire riveting main title, and when the opening landscape appears, we hear a coyote howl. It seems like Morricone took his inspiration for the main theme from this call of the wild, if you will. And Scott, I don't know if it was true for all of his work, but I read that Morricone composed not at a piano, but at his desk and with a script not necessarily with footage of the score. That's my understanding as well. And I also am aware that he did compose a bit of music for several films before the film was even in production, which is not the standard practice. But there were directors that trusted him to the point that they actually fit some of their shooting around the film music that had been composed. And in fact, some of the music was played on set to help inspire the actors and to um, kind of help with cinematography and camera work and lighting. So um, a little bit 
reversed from the practice that we kind of understand today, but certainly uh, a, a brilliant way to conceive of an artwork. I agree. It's really pure genius. The, the entire opening titles to The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly kind of encapsulate the entire movie in a way. Um, I think it is genius the way that he uses the same theme for each of the characters that are played by Clint Eastwood and Eli Wallach and Lee Van Cleef. What's different is the instrumentation, what plays the themes. So Blondie, and this is the man with no name, but right now his name is Blondie, he gets the recorder and the vocal wah-wahs. Angel Eyes is then depicted with the Argilofono, or the bass ocarina. This is kind of like a, a sweet potato-sized instrument with holes. It looks like a big seashell. And it is followed by whistling. And I love that Maracona uses human vocals and whistling as standard instruments in his orchestras. And the most famous treatment of the theme is the actual ai human vocals used for Tuco. Another really cool feature of the opening titles is what some might call a transition in musical terms, but for me seems to be a sort of leitmotif for the alliances, which are always in flux among these three characters. The primary instrument is an electric guitar, which I would say is not associated with Westerns, but in Marconi's hands, remember his strong pop background, seems like this perfect choice, along with some really well thought out chanting and epic choral backgrounds. So this entire main title establishes not a realistic, quote-unquote, Western scenario, but this fantasy dream world of Sergio Leone's construction of a Western, lays out all these main themes, gets us situated in the dramatic musical landscape.
those trumpets. Morricone, the trumpeter, certainly brought his expertise to bear in these warring factions in the opening title to The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. The memorable final sequence also features a trumpet solo, this time more evocative of mariachi. This is the so-called Mexican standoff scene, the three-way shootout in that large ceremonial circle of the cemetery at the end of the movie. I think it's one of the best five minutes in all of film. It's kind of a masterclass in pacing, in shot length, in shot scope, and in musical tension as these three characters face off. Here is that mariachi trumpet section from the cue called The Trio. One of the famous Morricone cues from The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly is the ecstasy of gold. It's the tune used frequently when Tuco is searching for the hidden treasure and features one of Morricone's favorite Italian sopranos, Eda Dell'Orso. Sea of Gold is recognizable not only from this iconic spaghetti western, but from countless covers and its use in TV, movies, and commercials. That's right. In fact, you'll hear it by the Ramones in Metallica and in rappers like Immortal Technique and Jay-Z. And in fact, I've uh, noticed, you know, with my increased TV viewing time during the quarantine, that H&M is actually using it right now in their commercial, Let's Change for Tomorrow. The world has changed. What we do today will define our tomorrow. We will keep changing how we design, how we choose materials, and how we make our products. We're turning using into reusing and recycling. Already more than half of our materials are recycled, organic, or sustainably sourced. By 2030, it will be 100%. Let's change for tomorrow. Ennio Morricone was nominated for an Oscar for the soundtrack to The Mission, the 1986 drama starring Robert De Niro and Jeremy Irons, 
about a Jesuit missionary in 18th century South America. You know, Lois, Marconi had a habit of producing amazing scores, some of which were noticeably better than the films that they supported. This might be one of those cases. I know there are a lot of mission fans. I have to admit this movie didn't land particularly well for me. But what did resonate was the soundtrack, which was beautifully crafted. And I feel like it had really odd edit points. And sometimes the music did something huge when nothing huge was happening on the screen. And in other places, there was something kind of really important that didn't get pinned to music and that might be an editing situation uh, more than than a than a composer situation but this is stunning music and i definitely recommend the soundtrack album for this movie and there are some really beautiful sync points in the in the movie it's a cool fusion i think of soundtrack hollywood land music and also Baroque music and tribal drumming. And it seems to highlight this kind of culture clash between the Spanish Jesuits and the Amazonian Indians. The acting is fantastic. I think the music is the star of this show. Gabriel's oboe is an everlasting gem from this soundtrack. Gabriel's oboe from the mission. That could have fallen right out of the Baroque era, including even a little background harpsichord. It's given this lush, romantic treatment by Ennio Morricone, and it's a stunning standalone concert piece that has outlived the movie itself. Ennio Morricone scored director Terence Malick's second feature film in 1978, for which he received his first Oscar nomination for Best Original Score. This was Days of Heaven, set in the 1916 Texas Panhandle, and it centers around a love triangle starring Richard Gere, Sam Shepard, and Brooke Adams. This is a moving soundtrack, and I'm not even sure how many people know this movie anymore, but I thought it would be sweet to listen to Ennio Morricone actually performing in the soundtrack album on piano in the cue that's called The Farmer and the Girl.
and this later gets fleshed out into a fuller orchestral setting. Farmer and the Girl from Days of Heaven. This is Ennio Morricone at his storytelling best. I think he brings these glorious themes that attach themselves beautifully to the characters and situations. This is a much more traditional sounding Hollywood orchestra, but we still have throughout the movie these guests like jaw harps and guitars and vocals to bring in some noticeable original Morricone touches. So if you don't know this score, definitely check out Days of Heaven. Scott, you know, I hold Ennio Morricone's music to the 1988 classic cinema Paradiso very close to my heart. And the movie itself is my second favorite of all time, second only to Blazing Saddles. I, I knew Blazing Saddles would work its way in here somehow. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Cinema Paradiso is a movie about the movies. It's a love letter to movies. And it's a beautiful story about a little boy who finds a father figure with his village's movie theater projectionist. His father was killed during the war. And the role of the projectionist takes on tremendous meaning for the little boy. Cinema Paradiso won the Academy Award for Best Foreign Language Film in 1989. And I don't know why Morricone didn't win the Oscar for its film score, but perhaps this was one of John Williams' many years. This music award-winning or not, is some of the most touching music in all of film music history, and maybe music history. Composers are usually brought in for post-production, as we've, we've said, but this was a case where Marconi was brought in early in the process by director Giuseppe Tornatore, and the music plays an integral part in the film, not, not background in any way. The cue, Visit to the Cinema, utilizes the main title theme that we often hear at concerts. Final theme to Cinema Paradiso, which kind of destroys most of us into little puddles. I've got my Kleenex <laughs> here already. It's a beautiful culmination of the movie's story arc as Salvatore, the main character, after he's gone off and become a famous director, 
learns that Alfredo, the film projectionist, has died, and he goes back to his little hometown to the funeral, and Alfredo's widow hands him a gift, and it's a, a reel of film that is a montage of all of the edited parts that he was forced to censor because it was very objectionable at the time, which is mostly people kissing. <laughs> so we see... Wait, in Italy? In Italy? I know. Uh, but it's a it's a, just a beautiful, beautiful end sequence when Salatori is watching this reel by himself in, in Rome. And we hear the music, which is soundtrack for us, but really is the the, the defining moment of, of Salvatore kind of coming to terms, coming to peace with his life and with his past. And uh, we hear the final scene music. Composer Hans Zimmer gave a loving tribute to Ennio Morricone on his Twitter feed, saying, The first note I ever heard of his grabbed a hold of me and wouldn't let go. And then Zimmer concluded by saying, Whenever you hear his pieces now, you will still hear his breath. You might not see him, but you will always hear him. And so to Ennio Morricone, 1928 to 2020, we say adio maestro, rest in peace, and thank you for your beautiful and brilliant music that lives with us always. Thank you, Scott. Dr. Scott Stewart, WABE music commentator, is host of Strike Up the Band. He's on the music faculty of the Westminster Schools and conductor of the Atlanta Youth Wind Symphony. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Author David Sedaris was to have gone on tour to some 40-plus cities before the pandemic hit. He has two books scheduled for release. One, a new essay collection. The essays of David Sedaris are wickedly funny and often bizarre. They can also be heartbreaking and poignant. When he was in Atlanta for his book tour promoting Calypso, David Sedaris joined me in studio. 
I mentioned how thrilled he must have felt about a rave review Alan Cumming had written for the New York Times. To tell you the truth, uh, I was at the New York Times maybe a little over a week ago to do a podcast there. And Pamela Paul, who's the head of the book section, said, oh, you know, the review's going to be on the cover of the review section. And Alan Cumming did it. And at first, I was a little bit disappointed, and I thought, oh, an actor reviewed my book? But then I thought, I don't – do I write for writers? I don't know. I mean, I think I just write for readers. And so, you know, he's a reader, and it was on the cover, and it was positive. So, But I, I don't ever read the reviews. You have a story about befriending a turtle. Mm-hmm. And part of what makes the imagery – memorable is that the snapping turtle is missing part of its foot. But what what accounted for your attachment to this turtle, David? We have a, a house on the coast of North Carolina, and there's a, salt, a freshwater canal not far from the house. And there's a little bridge that goes over it, and I was walking over the bridge one day, and I looked into the water, and it was teeming with turtle. I mean, it was just they're, – they're painted turtles, and then there are – the biggest snapping turtles I've ever seen in my life. And one was missing part of its foot, and it had a tumor on its head. You know, it's funny because any animal that doesn't change its facial expression, its personality is your own invention. Like when people say, oh, I think my snake is reflective today. No, it's <laughs> no, it's not. That's you just deciding. You know, oh, my bullfrog is angry. Mm-hmm, no, I think well, I noticed just... there's a reptile theme going here. Well, because they don't ever change their facial expressions. You know what I mean? Like a a dog or a cat, you know, a mammal, you can kind of read something into its face. But reptiles, I'm sorry. I, as far as I'm concerned, they're just not telling you anything. So the turtle has a tumor. You yourself had a tumor. And the size, that must have terrified you. Well, I woke up one day. I I really feel like it happened overnight. And there was a tumor at the base of my ribcage. Well, it was a lump. It was like you took a deviled egg and you put it under my skin. It was that size, that shape, and it was soft. And so I went to uh, my French doctor. I was in Paris at the time. And he said, oh, he said, oh, it's a lipoma. He said, dogs get them all the time. He said, don't worry about it. Oh, my dog has one of those. I'm always worried about it. I met somebody, a man at a book signing who has 70. 70? Yeah, a lot of them are like the size of pencil erasers. Oh. They weren't as big. I I still have one in the very top of my head, but I can live with that one. Okay, so I could see where an egg-sized lump at the base of your rib cage would be very scary. You wanted to have it removed. Well, no, because the guy said... He said he made me feel like I was being vain, excessively vain and wanting it removed, right? The French doctor. These are the French who also don't understand the importance of the Easter bunny. They they think that's ridiculous when a bell makes perfect sense. Well, you know, my French periodontist, uh, this is a – I went to her and I said, oh, I've been flossing every day since my last visit. And she said – there's no need. <laughs> There's other, better things you could be doing with that time. And she pulled out a gold was. But they just don't 
it's it's just a kind of a different attitude. So the the the, the doctor made me feel like. I was being vain. So I thought, okay. But I was swimming at the time. And so I just pulled my bathing suit up a little higher, right? And I was fine with that. But then I went to North Carolina and I started hanging out with these turtles. And I thought, you know, I bet a turtle would want to eat my tumor. And so I went to a surgeon. And he said, I'll cut it out of you, but you can't have it. It's against the law for me to give you anything I remove from your body. And that didn't seem fair for any number of reasons. One, it's mine. Two, I'm paying. I don't remember how much he said the surgery would cost. It was like $5,000 at least to have this tumor cut out of me. And it just didn't seem fair. I could see you want to run a test on it. Fine, but give me the rest. It's mine. And he said no. So I mentioned that on stage. I was in El Paso, Texas, and this woman came up, and she said, I'll cut it out of you, and I'll let you keep it. Was she an MD? She was a she was a doctor, but then people said to me, "How do you know she was a doctor?" It's like she told me she was. <laughs> <laughs> she said, "Look, I'm not a surgeon, but if I cut you open and it's above my pay grade, we'll close you up and you know figure something out." But David, why did you think that feeding the turtle your tumor was something that would help it? I just thought they eat anything, right? I mean, not anything. They would probably wouldn't want a strawberry. But any protein, it, it's happy to eat. And it's sort of like a, an alligator, right? An alligator would never say, that chicken's expired. It just eats it. <laughs> it figures it out later. And so, when it expires. Yeah. <laughs> so it doesn't – uh, of course it would want to eat it. Sure. You know, of course it would. And and so I, I just thought of all the things that are wasted. Like think of – I remember this woman got in trouble in Florida a couple of years ago because she was a EMT worker. And I think in the same thing, they go to the scenes of yes. emergencies and stuff. And somebody lost a foot in a car accident and she took it home and used it to train her dog. And then they found out she got in huge trouble. And I thought, well, why? They couldn't sew the foot back on. I mean, if it had been my foot, I'm not a big dog person. I mean, if they used it to train a cat, I would have been happier. But I would have said, <laughs> that's okay. That's fine. But think of all the things that go to waste. If you took that foot and if you threw it to a snapping turtle again or an alligator, delighted. Author and humorist David Sedaris, his new collection of essays is scheduled for release in the fall. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of Atlanta arts and cultural life. We'll be back with a new show Monday at 11 a.m. Our theme music is the first time Written and performed by Joe Cranston with his jazz band. Special thanks to Hot Shoe Records. Summer Evans and Ryan McFadden are our producers. Thanks to producer Stephen Key for his work, too. Kevin Rinker is our engineer, and I'm Lois Reitzes. You can follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S 
R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Listen back to interviews and check out our show's archives at wabe.org slash citylights. And please do listen to our new podcast wherever you subscribe. Here's wishing you a safe and good weekend. And thanks for listening to WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate and thanks.